this scripture passage today is Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4. If you can turn with me in your Bibles or follow along behind me. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to get some unique perspective this morning on something that's very, very important to have clear and right perspective on. Perspective is an interesting thing. I have a perspective looking out right now as I look out at you. You have a perspective as you look to me right now. And then there's God's perspective, right? God can see both of us. He can see us from all angles. Simultaneously. He can see us inside and out. So God has perfect perspective in all things and on all things, and he always has and he always will because he's God. That's why it's critically important for us as a community to go to God, to go to his word regularly, to gain a right perspective on reality, especially on serious matters Matters of life and death. And so the passage we're looking at this morning does just that. It gives us a perspective, a clear and right and perfect perspective on how we are to view life and death as Christians in light of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've entitled the sermon this morning, Christian Perspective on Life and Death. Keep that in mind, and let's read together in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18b through verse 26. Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Here's my first point for us this morning as it relates to perspective Our salvation is coming. Deliverance is coming. Our salvation is coming. 
Look at the text. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know, dot, 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 that this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul has a a certainty that salvation is on the horizon here. He's sure of it. The word deliverance here is soterion. It, It means salvation. I think that's interesting. Because you got to ask the question, what's the intended meaning of this word, deliverance, salvation? Is it, is it in the sense that it's relating to and referring to salvation in the eternal, spiritual way? Or is it a deliverance that means it's salvation from the temporal trial or tribulation for Paul, you know, house arrest in Rome, persecution for his faith? And I think the answer is yes. It's both. I think this word, which has some ambiguity, is very intentionally used by Paul. Because he knows. Either way. Whether he's released from his imprisonment, or whether he is released to be with Christ through death in heaven, salvation is on the horizon. It is coming. Deliverance is is coming for us as believers. What an important perspective for us to hold and to believe and cling to. It provides us with real hope. I know that you came in here and and you are wrestling with some trial. There's so many trials in life. And I can't promise you that, that you will escape this trial or this difficulty or this pain or this heartache. But I can say with absolute certainty that deliverance is coming. Ultimately, it is coming. Our salvation is coming when we go to be with the Lord or when Christ comes to save us in his return. Years ago, I was discipling a young man. We're going to call his name Danny. Okay, And so Danny and I got to spend a lot of time together. He was in high school. Danny was suffering from chronic physical pain. It was so severe, he couldn't concentrate on anything at times, especially school. And his poor mother was taking him from appointment to appointment. I mean, it was physician after physician. They got to a point where they started going to psychiatrists and neurologists because they're going, is there, is there like something wrong in the brain? Is his brain communicating to his body that there's pain here when there's not really pain? It's just sending signals. What's going on? Because this just doesn't seem to end. And to date, I don't know if they ever found any super effective solutions for him. It was incredibly discouraging for Danny. And I'll never forget this one time in particular. When near to tears, Danny looked at me and he just said, I feel like I don't have a future. And I shared with him. I was honest. But in all compassion and honesty, I shared with him, your future might be full of the same pain that you're in right now. We just don't know. We can't predict it. But Danny, the future future is bright. The future future Salvation is on the horizon. 
Because you've taken refuge in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There is certainty of salvation here in Paul's heart and in his mind. And it brings him great joy. That's why he opens this by saying, yes, and I will rejoice. But what's amazing is that it's a double joy. It is a double rejoicing. Look at the beginning of of verse 18. Not the end of it, but the beginning of it. Because we need to remember the context in which this joy is erupting. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. See, there were people who were proclaiming Christ while Paul was in prison, some who were preaching Christ out of the encouragement and the inspiration of Paul's suffering for the the gospel. And then there were those, as we heard a couple weeks ago, who were preaching to afflict Paul in prison. They didn't like Paul. They didn't care for him. And they wanted to exalt themselves and for Paul to decrease and them to increase. And Paul goes, I don't care. Because Christ is truly being proclaimed, whether in pretense or in truth. And because he's being proclaimed, the gospel is going out. And because the gospel is going out, people are hearing it and some are being saved. And I rejoice in their salvation. But the double joy is that he is reminded of and rejoicing in his own salvation here. Deliverance is on the horizon. Salvation is coming. And so there is great joy in salvation for Paul, and there's great joy in salvation for us as we navigate trials in this broken life, in this fallen world, and broken bodies. The means of salvation he shares with us. He says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. So what are the means of salvation here that he references for the endurance? The prayers of other believers, specifically the Philippians, and the help of the Holy Spirit who is at his side in imprisonment. We typically think about Paul as helping others, right? The great apostle and missionary and church planter and pastor and servant of Christ and ambassador of Christ. He's helping a lot of people. He's ministering to a lot of people. But Paul is reminding us and the Philippians that he needs help. And he is not just reminding them that their prayers are helping him, that they're actually a means that God is using for their deliverance. He is reminding them by implication to keep praying for me. God's using your prayers. It reminds us that prayer is never pointless, ever. It is quite powerful. And prayer is often, I said this several weeks ago, it's often the most neglected ministry in the church. Not here. I love that we're a praying church here. Let's keep it going. But it is often neglected because you don't always see the results immediately. You don't see the the fruit of the, the time on your knees in prayer with tears and earnestness and zeal. You just don't see it. But in God's economy, it's there. There's not a prayer that returns void. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He literally said, pray like this. Matthew 6, verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is one of the vital ways that the Philippians partnered with Paul in ministry. They were sending up prayers for him. They were sending out people to him. We see that in chapter 2 with Epaphroditus. 
And with Epaphroditus, they were sending provision for him. They were financially supporting and providing for his needs, his physical needs. And so I'd just say, shameless plug for me. Continue praying for me and for my family. This is my, my first, fourth weekend to get to preach here at Christ Redeemer. And, and I absolutely love getting to, to serve you and getting to pray for you and your families. Please continue to pray for me and my family. I need your prayers. The second means of salvation that Paul mentions here is the help of the Holy Spirit. And man, I had to cut out a lot on this because I was about to give you an entire survey on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that is for another time. The Holy Spirit is wonderful. He is wonderful. He is a present help in our time of need. He is the helper. That's literally one of his titles, John 14. The Holy Spirit's our helper from the beginning to the end of our salvation, from the regeneration. He, he is the one who regenerates us, who gives us a new heart. It says in Titus 3.5, God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sealed us for the day of redemption. Ephesians chapter 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Later on in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Paul reminds the Ephesians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God through sin, by whom you were sealed by the day of redemption. We don't want to grieve the Spirit. The Spirit not only gave us new life, the Spirit gave us secure life through sealing us for that day. The Spirit guides and leads us. Galatians 5.16 says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Holy Spirit does not work apart from the Word of God. He works in conjunction with the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is convicting us. He is convincing us of what is good and right and true and perfect and pure. And He is encouraging us to walk in accordance with the Word of God, to walk by faith in what God has written. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer. Romans 8, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to, what to pray for as we ought, but He, the Spirit, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He is our helper. I said this earlier, John 14, 26, listen, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, how is He going to help us? It says, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, contextually, Paul, Jesus is speaking to the apostles. He's speaking to the disciples here. And this is actually a guarantee that when he was gone, when Christ was ultimately resurrected and ascended into heaven, that he would bring to their memory all that he taught them and that they would accurately, guided by the Holy Spirit, write down the Word of God in the gospel accounts that we have. But the implication for us is this. 
He will teach you all things. The Holy Spirit illuminates the Scriptures for you and I as we go to study the Scriptures so that we may keep in step with the Spirit and we may walk in accordance to the will of God. Does it, do you see what I'm saying? That's the implication for us. How, how often... Do we go to our study Bibles and our commentaries and we look at the study notes and we listen to these these comments from men before we cry out to God and say, Holy Spirit, help me understand. I am quite confident that the reason why we struggle to understand so much of what we're reading is not because of the clarity of Scripture is not there. It is because we are not depending on God to help us. Now, The Holy Spirit gives gifts to men, and there are gifted men and women in the church who have the gift of teaching, who can help teach men teaching the congregation, women teaching other women the Word of God with great clarity because they have the gift of teaching. But there is an opportunity for every single one of us as we go to the Word of God to pray for that light to turn on in the room that we could know God and know His will more clearly. I pray we'd lean into that. It says He will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit brings to our minds that which He taught us at times so that we can bear witness for Christ so that we can give a defense for the hope that is within us, so that we can offer biblical counsel and guidance to other believers. Yeah, so the Holy Spirit helps us. I've got to mention these last two because this is so pertinent to Paul's situation. He gives us boldness for gospel ministry. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7 God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Acts chapter 4, verse 31, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. The Holy Spirit provides us with peace and joy and hope in the midst of our trials and tribulations. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So in light of Paul's certainty that salvation is coming, in light of Paul's, in light of the means by which that deliverance is coming through the prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit. Paul had joy. And and he was able to live differently than others who might have been in a difficult situation like his because he had joy. He had a right perspective on life and death and salvation. To live as Christ and to die as gain and our Savior is to be honored in life and death. That brings me to my second point. Our Savior is to be honored. So not only is salvation coming, but our Savior is to be honored. As it is my eager expectation, verse 20, and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
I want you to see the aspiration to honor Christ from the Apostle Paul here. It is my eager expectation and hope, dot, 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 that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. The honor of Christ was Paul's primary aspiration. It was the top of his list. It was his hope. It was his eager expectation. It was his primary focus in life, the honor of Christ. That word honored, it literally translates to made large. Made large. And it reminds me of the words of John the Baptist speaking of Jesus in John 3 verse 30. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, he must increase. I must decrease. He must be made large. I must diminish. He must take the forefront. I must take the background. That's what our lives are to be like. And as we grow in sanctification and maturity, that's what maturity looks like. Christ on display, me in the background. More of Christ, less of me. Increase of Christ, decrease of Arch Macintosh. That's why I love the pulpit. I just hide behind this thing. It's hard. I'm 6'3 and 2'10. But I, I mean, this is what we're here for. Him. Him. Him we proclaim. Him. My question for you, and this is a question I asked myself. I'm never going to ask you a question that I didn't first ask myself and apply to my own heart and life. But here's the question. Is this your aspiration in life? I mean, is this your primary aspiration in life? The honor of Christ is that what you get up in the morning and think of first? Let me honor Christ. Let me be like the psalmist in Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's a convicting question. I know. Because so often we don't. This question brought me to tears this week, legitimately. So often we don't. We have good reason to, but so often we don't. What is your greatest aspiration right now? Just think about it. What is it that you aspire to most right now? If it is not the honor of Christ, what is it? Identify it, confess it, forsake it. Don't settle for anything less than the honor of Christ as your great aspiration in life. Don't settle for shallow aspirations, friends. Paul didn't want to merely honor Christ periodically, bodily, through religious activities and ministry. Paul aspired to honor Christ from the heart. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ would be honored 
in my body, whether by life or death. Paul wanted to live so in love and reverence of Christ that he was unembarrassed by him. He was totally unashamed of him. He was courageously bold in his name. So you've got to ask the question, what enables a person to aspire to honor Christ like that? What enables a person to honor Christ like that? So extensively, so holistically, so wholeheartedly. It's an important question. In part, I think it's this. It's having a right perspective on life and death. And here's why I think that. Because the next verse says this. For or because to me, to live is Christ. That's what life is. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I think this is what enables us to honor Christ the most, is when we have a right perspective that life is Christ and death is gain. To live is Christ. You cannot truly honor Christ in your life if your life is still yours. Can't. You cannot truly honor Christ in life if your life is shared with Christ. If part of it's his, but then part of it's still yours. So the question is, is your life still yours? Or is it Christ's? Has Christ become your life? Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Listen to the warnings of Jesus Christ. In every gospel account, starting in Matthew 10, verse 39, whoever finds his life loses it. Whoever loses it, for my sake, will find it. Mark 8, 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses it, for my sake and the gospel's, will save it. Luke 17, 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. John chapter 12, verse 25, whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. Christ doesn't want a portion of your life. He just wants all of it. Christ isn't asking for some of you. He wants all of you. Jesus is not asking for a spot in the backseat of your car on the highway of life. He is inviting you to pull over, to get in the passenger seat, and to give him the keys. Listen to this theme of to live as Christ in the scriptures. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Colossians 3, 3 through 4, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And listen to me, the opposite is true. Look at me. If Christ appears and he is not your life, you will not appear with him in glory. That's a warning. That's a reality. Let me read it again. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Praise God. But if Christ is not your life, when he appears, you will not appear with him in glory. So you and I need to ask ourselves tough examination questions this morning. If an anthropologist or a sociologist or some social scientist was observing your life and they were like a private detective and they were watching you 24-7 for a week straight, would this be true? Would to live be Christ for you? Could they come out of that time of observation and study and say, for him to live is Christ? Again, so often it's not true. Why? Not because we're not alive in Christ, but because we have gradually drifted and our perspective on life has become life is about us and it's not about him. And life is about him because he gave us his life. And there is new life in Christ. So what should I do this morning? If, if I am coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the word of God and I go, man, life has not been about me. Confess it to the Lord. Repent. Christ doesn't want you to wallow in self-pity this afternoon. He just doesn't. He wants to correct the perspective that you have that has been skewed over time. He just wants to, he wants to make it right. He wants to show you what life is and what death is and what salvation is and what hope is. That's what he wants for you. He loves you. He's demonstrated that quite clearly on the cross. Amen? Man, just confess it. Just turn to him. Just receive mercy. Christ wants to give you joy this morning in finding true life, abundant life. How? Through letting your life go and clinging to him with two hands as life. That's what he wants. Christ knew we would fail at living for the honor of God. That's the whole point of the gospel. He came because we didn't. And then he did. And then he paid the penalty for our failure out of love, out of a desire to be in communion with us. That's why Isaac Watts, he responded to this beautiful gospel in writing this. We're the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small to give to God. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Now, don't get confused on this. We can't pay Jesus back for what he did. Don't try. That would be a works-based righteousness. Don't, don't do that. 
Look at what he did and respond. Look at what he get, did and the white knuckles will slowly release and you will cling to him like you've never clung to him before. Look at what he did. Look at what he did right here. He gave up his life for us first. That's why we surrender our life to him. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So to live is Christ. And to die is gain. To die is gain. Those are the two equations here on a philosophy of life and death. To live equals Christ. To die equals gain. And you will never view death as gain. Ever. If you don't first view life as Christ. Think with me. Those who find their life apart from Christ, they'll never view, view death as gain. They'll, they'll view death as losing their life. But those who find their life in Christ, those who see that life is Christ, can view death as gain because it means more of Christ. It means the immediate presence of Christ. Gain literally translates to receive a great profit. Paul has a true and right perspective not only on life but on death. It is gain for the believer because death is not a tragedy. It's a triumph. The grave graduates Paul from gloom on this earth, this broken earth, to glory in the presence of Christ. Death transfers Paul into the immediate presence of Jesus Christ. He says this in Philippians 1.23, My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. Better than what? Than the best life anyone could ever live in this short mist and vapor of a life on earth. Better than that. This is huge. It's huge for us because it reminds us that when a believer dies, their soul departs from their body and they immediately go to be with Christ. Not just in heaven, not, not just within the same zip code of Jesus in heaven. In his presence. Right there. Face to face, he meets us right there. That's what he told that thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Not just you'll be in paradise. You'll be with me. Do you have to be an apostle or a pastor to have this perspective on life and death to feel this way about Christ? Good gracious, I hope not. There's far less pastors out there than there are Christians, and all the apostles are dead. Can you feel this way about Christ? Can you have this perspective on life and death as a member of a church? Yes, you can. And I pray, this is my prayer for us this week, that this would be our united perspective on life and on death. And in that perspective, with that right theology, that our lives would look different and people would be turning their heads in McKinney and the surrounding area in its holiness. It's just set apart. Life is not about 
fill in the blank. Life for them is about Christ and his honor and his glory and his pleasure. And so everything that they're doing is for him and not for them. <sighs> Powerful. What if we had this perspective on death? We don't fear death. We know it's graduating us to glory. Boy, that's going to turn heads. Holiness, that's all it is in our life. What awaits us after death? Heaven. The present heaven, and then when Christ returns, the new heavens and the new earth. Streets of gold, gates of pearl. Yes, Revelation 21, 21. Will you see loved ones in heaven? Sure, all who are in Christ. Will you have a new body rid of the ailments in that resurrection that's coming? Absolutely. It's a promise, 1 Corinthians 15. Will you be totally free from all danger? Never die again. Never be tempted to sin. Yep. But the greatest thing about heaven is Jesus is there. He meets you there. And he never leaves you. Friends, we, we've got to be honest with ourselves about something. Do you long for Jesus right now? I mean, do you long for his presence? Do you hunger and thirst for time and quiet with just you and Jesus? Do you long to gather like this and focus on Jesus? If not, I'm just going to be honest, it's likely that death is not gain for you. Why would you long for Jesus through death if you don't long for Jesus in your life? And if that's the case, if death is not gained for you right now, this morning, September the 17th, then it's true that life is likely not Christ for you. So we need to be on guard. We need to be repentant. We need to bear fruit by keeping with repentance. We need to be repentant so that we can have a perfect perspective on life and death and salvation and the rest we need to destroy the idols that are subtly ascending, again, the staircase to the throne of our hearts where Christ belongs. The future will be this for Paul. He will be released, spoiler alert, and he's going to preach for another six years. But Paul doesn't know that. He seems that there's a hunch that that's going to come. And there may be a release. He alludes to that a little bit here, but he doesn't know for sure. But he does know this. God is sovereign, and he is in control of his life and his death. That to live is Christ. That to die is gain. And that Paul's purpose is to bring Christ honor no matter what happens. You and I cannot predict our futures but we can honor Christ in the present. And part of the way that we honor Christ is through personal self-denial for the good of others. Which brings me to my third and final point. Our self-denial is necessary. Our self-denial is needed. Look at verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, 
That means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. See, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul's presented with a real dilemma here. The dilemma is this. It's one of his personal preference, the thing that's going to bring him the most pleasure to depart and be with Christ, and the progress of the people in his life that he ministers to, and their joy in Christ. That's the dilemma. He's torn. They're both good things, but this is the better thing, right? But this gives us some guidelines of what to follow in our own lives. You see, Paul, his natural inclination, the desire of his heart is good. He wants to depart. He wants to be with Christ. He understands that death is not bad. It is good because it means more of Christ who is his life. But that desire, it comes into conflict with Paul's apostolic responsibilities, his role. To live, it it meant fruitful labor which for Paul specifically meant planting churches, meant raising up pastors like Timothy, meant progress and maturity and investing and equipping the saints so that they would have greater joy and be more effective in ministry. Do we not have similar tensions in our lives? Between what is best for us, what we would prefer personally, and what's best for others and for the honor of Christ, We absolutely do. We have responsibilities. We have roles. And sometimes those aren't as attractive as what we would prefer, right? Each of our responsibilities and our ministry focuses, they're going to be different based on the roles that God has assigned to us and and the season of life that we're in. It's going to be different based on the spiritual gifts that he's entrusted to us. But the need for self-denial ain't changing. It remains the same. And the purpose is the same. It's for the honor of Christ. It's for the benefit and progress and joy of others. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would have me as Lord and Savior, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There is no retirement from ministry and service to Christ. Listen, you might retire from your day job. You you might retire from the job which you pay bills. You you might have a 401k, you might have a pension, and you might be able to quit working in that job, but you will never, as a bondservant of Christ, purchased by the blood of Christ, stop serving Christ. You will never, at any point in your life, hang up the cleats of ministry and go, you know what, it was a good run. Wonderful, 50 years of serving you, Lord, of denying my flesh. No. You're never going to get to a point where you say, my service is over, I'm no longer needed, 
from the church. I would say as we get older, we're more needed than at any point in the past. There's no point where we can say, now is my time to rest before salvation, before his coming. Rest is coming, but it's not here yet. And so we are to strive to enter that rest by faith in Christ for the honor of Christ. The internal battle is real for every single one of us. There are things that we want to do, and then there's the things that are best for God, His glory, and for others. We face this dilemma every single day. This is part and parcel of what Christian discipleship is. This is the basics of Christianity. This is what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. What is the greatest good for your family in this season of life right now? What is the greatest good for your church in this season of life right now? It is the progress in the faith and the spiritual maturity of those who have been entrusted to your care. And it is for their abounding joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we conclude, we need to ask ourselves those tough questions again. I'm sorry. But here they are. Is life Christ for me? Is death gain for me? Am I ready to die? Have I begun to live? In the words of William Wallace, every man dies, but not every man really lives. There is real life in Christ. And he invites you to come to him. All who labor, all who are heavy laden, take his yoke upon you. He loves you. His burden is light. He wants to give your soul rest. What an incredible reminder for us that God is the author of our lives, that he knows our birthday and he knows our death day down to the minute and the second hand on the clock. What an incredible reminder for us that though we have not honored God in our lives, Christ did, and he did it for us, and then he died for the penalty of our sin, paid it in full, and he cried out on the cross, it is finished to give us confidence that there is hope for us in Christ, in death, more of Christ. What an incredible reminder that because of what Christ has done, we can endure the trials of this life and put our hope not in this life, but in him, knowing that our salvation is coming. Our Savior is to be honored. And our self-denial is necessary and helpful to those around us. Let's pray. Lord, give us this perspective always. Help us live 
with eternity in our sights. Let life be Christ and let death be gain for us legitimately and sincerely and continually. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.